0: Father, right now we just ask you that you would help us, give us strength, Lord, as we just look at your word, to try to understand what it is that you want to speak to us. I do commit, God, just this time in your hands, pray that you'd be glorified, pray that you'd be honored, and pray that more than anything else, God, that you would just put good practice to our theology, that our understanding, our concepts of who you are would be clear and biblical. And God, at the same time, you would flush away, that you would remove, uh, that you would edit out of our thinking any type of conception of you that's just not biblical, any type of concept of you that we put there ourselves. So God, I pray that you would override through the power of your word, uh, through the preaching of your word, the proclamation of your word, uh, rewrite perhaps even in some of our hearts an understanding of who you truly are to replace, God, false concepts of who you are in our minds. We want to walk with you. We want to know how to live in according, uh, following your word, following your plan, Even if that means pain or great joy. We want to make you, Jesus, our greatest treasure. So we pray that you would help us right now in letting your scriptures speak to our hearts about these things. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I want to jump in basically first of all, trying to understand this passage by pointing out what I'm going to basically call um, sort of an interpretive key as we look at this. And the interpretive key that I want for you guys to notice is that there's a radical change, a radical transition. Did any of you guys catch it? When we were reading through the passage, so we were talking about, you know, this, this huge litany of people, this big list of people, um, and it goes on, and talks about how some of them were doing all these great things, well, like right here, here's the first interpretive key, is that they became strong out of weakness, but the second principle was really the inverse of all this. Did you guys catch that? Did anybody catch that? Anybody? Okay. Both of you. Praise God. All right. Um, the, the, the reality is that there was this radical transition in the text, radical transition, I mean, here, here's how stark it is. I'm going I'm to give you sort of the first list of what he's talking about. In other words, these are people that I'm just going to, like I said, call, these are the those who became strong out of weakness. These are the people we love to hear their stories about. Here's kind of an example of them. These are people that conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, made strong out of weakness. All right, these are the people that lived in the ghetto, and at some point in their life, they became strong. They became the next president. All right? That's the type of story, in a lot of ways, we really resonate with. This is the type of story we love. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, this type of story, I'm going to give you a nice little, you know, simple phrase for it, it's like the glory story. We like glory stories. We love glory stories. In fact, glory stories are sort of the fiber of the American people, aren't they? Right? I mean, that's how our country started. A small group of people, they weathered this gnarly winter, they came out on top, and they just sort of laid the foundation, the baseline for what was going to happen for the rest of history of this great nation. We love, love stories like this. I mean, there's, there's a whole host of movies that are all about this, right? Finding Forrester, Mr. Holland Opus, Blind Side. you guys see that? Sandra Bullock, all right? Great story, great movie. We love stories like this because it's all about the underdog, the person that nobody expects anything good to come of their life. Then all of a sudden, something turns around and they become great. Something miraculous happens. Someone finds them. Someone comes along into their life, and all of their woes get transformed into these great victories. We love these types of stories. We love, love, love the glory story. This whole idea that's about sort of this perennial optimism, this sense of being positive, conquering. Again, we love the glory story. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that if your concept of God is only this, if you stop conceptually in your theology, in your understanding, in your conception of God, at verse 35, this particular verse, then you're doomed Okay, you're honestly, you are absolutely doomed for failure. Your life will fall apart. Your life will fall apart. I'll tell you why in a second here. But the reality is, is unfortunately, this is, this is the type of theme that sort of gets promoted in churches that might be, you know, preach some sort of like a prosperity doctrine or prosperity gospel. The idea that God wants you healthy. The idea that God may want you wealthy. He wants you well taken care of. He wants you to be comfortable in this life so that all things are going good for you. Because as you are doing good, as you are wealthy, as you are healthy, as you are secure, as all these things are taking place in your life and kind of working together in some way, that the idea is that God is in the glory. That God is in the glory. If that's where your concept of God stops, you're doomed. You're doomed. Because the reality is, that's not the full story of the gospel. It's not the full story of the gospel. Because the full story of the gospel, the story of Jesus, well, we're going to throw out a big theological word, the incarnation. The incarnation actually tells us that God is not ultimately only in the glory, but that he's also in the suffering. He's also in the pain. He's in the difficulty. He's in the hardship. Because the second sort of interpretive key to this whole passage takes place in the next segment of verses, which we'll read through. Take a look at this. So again, the transition happens. I think it's around verse 35, if I'm correct. Uh, Right around there it says, women received back their dead by by resurrection. Then right there it transitions. Then it says, some were burned, or some were tortured I should say, or laid out. It's kind of what the actual Greek word implies. They were laid out. Sort of this idea they were on this ball, and they would actually stretch their backs out. They'd put them on this ball, kind of stretch them out, and they would stretch them out in such a way either on their back or on their front side. So that their back would be sort of stretched. And the skin on their back would be stretched. So that when they scourged them. Their skin would literally rip. And so some were tortured. Uh, So this radical transition happens. Some by faith conquered kingdoms. Some by faith stopped the mouths of lions. You know again these are allusions to guys maybe like Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Other people like that. Um, But the reality is, is. He goes on in this list to continue it. To point out that others by faith. Others, by faith, they were tortured. They refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others, they suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. Some others, by faith, went about in skins. It's basically no clothes. Didn't have anything nice. There were no luxuries. Others, you know what the text is actually saying is this. Some, by faith, had great success. Some, by faith, were raised to levels of great honor, great respect within the kingdom, within the government, within the society, within the culture. Others by faith. When they were in the moment of great weakness, hardship, difficulty, they cried out and they prayed. And there was no delivering angel. There was no shout from heaven. There was no answer that says, I'll take care of you. There was no hand that stopped the sword. You understand this? This is so central to our faith, to our understanding of God. Because if your concept of God is that he is only with you in the glory story, then what do you do with the fact with the rest of your life, when you find yourself in the dumps, what do you do with the rest of the fact of your life, that when you find yourself in difficulties, when the bills aren't getting paid, when your children are rebellious, when you can't pay your mortgage, when you lose your job, when you're not making the proper grades and you are threatened with the reality of being booted out of school, when you're not able to pay your tuition, when your boyfriend breaks up with you or you get raped, what do you do with those realities in those moments? Well, the doctor says you got cancer. You may have six months left to live. What do you do with those moments? Do You just jump to the assumption that God must not be there or he's abandoned you, or he's stopped caring. See what I'm saying? If your theology only stops at verse 35, if your theology is only built upon this concept of the glory story, and not the cross story, or the theology of the cross, if all you have is a theology of glory divorced from the theology of the cross, then you're gonna be miserable. You won't make it. You will be doomed. In fact, what you really have at the end of the day, is you have your own God, you created your own God, you made up your own God, you made up a God that basically works for you when you want him to work, how you want him to work, and he's not the God of the Bible. I want to really shift gears here and talk about at least three examples of people that sort of exemplify this, that speak of this. Um, taking the verse, verse thirty-five, the second part of verse thirty-five, I'm going to give you three examples. The first of which is a group of guys called the Maccabee brothers. Um, I believe in the particular passage that we just read in verse 35, uh, on down about verse 36, more so verse 35, it says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Um, there's really not any type of Old Testament allusion to this particular story. So a lot of scholars have asked the question, who is this a reference to? Who are they talking about here? Who refused to be released so that they wouldn't be, you know, tortured? But instead, they actually allowed themselves to be tortured. Because they wanted a better resurrection. They wanted a resurrection that actually was even better than the resurrection of these mothers who had their sons raised from dead. Who are these people? And so a lot of scholars have actually leaned towards the belief that this is probably a reference to what's called the Maccabean period. The Maccabean revolt. These were seven brothers. that took place about 165 or so AD or B.C. Um, it was during the time of a king by the, na- by the name of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, it's what's called the intertestamental period, meaning there's about a period about 400 years when the book of Malachi was finished and when uh, the other New Testament writings took place when Jesus came on the scene. So about 400 year period of time uh, in which um, it was just called intertestamental period. And so it was in this period of time that this Maccabean revolt had kind of happened. So this guy Antiochus Epiphanes it basically was, you know, hated the Jews, was taunting them all the time, uh, was always causing problems to them, and basically, they just viewed him as sort of the Antichrist. They hated Antiochus Epiphanes, and there was this revolt. And these seven brothers, called the Maccabee brothers, had sort of revolted against the king. They ended up getting caught. They were sort of terrorists. They would have been viewed as sort of the Osama Bin Laden's of the day, only in the Jewish mind, they were the good guys. They were the guys that were actually fighting for God. They're fighting for God because they felt God was better than Antiochus Epiphanes and what Antiochus Epiphanes was doing. So what ends up happening is these guys get arrested. They get brought before Antiochus Epiphanes and the story is spelled out in a book that we call 2 uh, Maccabees, First and 2 Maccabees. If any of you guys were raised up Catholic, you know, maybe there's like other books in your Bible that you're like, how come that's not in my Protestant Bible? It's because we don't believe that they're actually inspired. We don't consider them part of the canonical uh, book of literature. But we do consider them historical. And so what's interesting about this is I think this story is probably, or this allusion is to this group of people. And the reason is, is because it might be a little bit foreign for us because we're like, we don't know these people. That's because we're Gentiles. This book was written to Jewish people, even though it would imply us or speak to us. But the reality is these people, when they would have heard this message, they would have immediately been reminded of the stories that they were told as they were young. And also, by the way, if um, any of you guys know like Hanukkah, Hanukkah actually is the yearly retelling of the story of the Maccabean revolt. So every year, when the season of Hanukkah comes into sight, uh, they remind themselves of what God did through the Maccabean brothers. So I want to read you just a very, very quick story. In fact, if you want to read the rest of them on blog, I posted the whole story of this, um, and it's very, very fascinating. I want to read you a couple things, because the writer of Hebrews alludes to their story. There's something about them he wants us to see. So the point is, by faith, others, others followed God and died. Others followed God and were tortured. So here's, here's kind of their story. So as they were brought before Antichrist Epiphanes, he basically stands before them. and He's like, Look, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you guys to eat this big slab of pork. Now obviously good Jews don't eat that type of pork or eat that type of food. So these guys were trying hard to maintain kosher lifestyles in obedience to God. So they stand before the king and he's like, eat this food, and they're like, I won't eat it. All seven of them, and their mom actually was there as well. And they're like, we won't eat it. So the first brother actually gets brought up, and he's kind of the spokesman of the group, and the Antiochus Epiphanes basically says, if you don't eat the food, I'm going to kill you. But before I do, I'm going to torture you. So I'm going to cut off your hands. I'm going to cut out your tongue. I'm going to scalp you. And I'm going to pour, you, pour your body into a burning hot cauldron of oil. It's a very, very graphic story, but I want you to listen to it because there's some very fascinating things that these guys give us in terms of insight about their concept and belief about God. So the first brother comes to him, and here's what it says. But the brothers and their mothers encourage this first brother, and they encourage one another to die nobly. Here's how they encourage one another to die nobly. Here's what it says. The Lord God is watching over us in truth, and he will have compassion on us. So God's watching over us. We believe that. That's what the point is. They're encouraging one another. They're like, look, God is here. God is with us in our suffering. God isn't abandon us. We're not saying woe is me because I didn't get what I wanted. We believe God is here in our suffering, our hardship. We're going to keep our faith and trust and confidence in him. So they end up killing his brother. The second brother comes on the scene and they basically one by one take the brother. Not only a way of humiliating, but imagine yourself as a mom. And you're watching your seven sons be tortured in front of your very eyes. And every single one of them is having, place and confidence in God. They're literally dying because they refuse to disobey God. It's one of these stories that's very powerful. Here's what the second brother says. So he turns to Antiochus Epiphanes and he says this. And when it was his last breath, just before he breathed his last, he said this. You accursed wretch. You dismiss us from this present life. But the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life. Do you get that? And then he dies. Here's the third brother. After the third was the victim of sport, when it was demanded, he quickly put out his tongue, and he courageously stretched out his hands. Imagine that? Sticks out his tongue, puts out his hands to the king, knowing very well what was about to take place, and it says this, then he said nobly, I got these from heaven. Because of the laws, And and because of his laws, I disdain my very hands. And he says, and I, from him, I hope to even get them back one day again. You hear what he's saying? He said, I was given these hands by God. And if it means I lose them because of God, for God, I just know my God will one day give me them back. I know my God will take care of me. I know my God will give me a new life someday, that's even better than what this can be seen. Here's the last one. This is the mom. This is profound. Here's the mom. She just watched uh, as her seven sons died, but just before the sick place, here's what it says. She encouraged each of them, firing forth. I love the way this is written. Firing forth of a woman's reason and a man's courage. Women, that's awesome. It's like, if you can do that, balance it out, a woman's courage, or a, a man's courage and a woman's reasoning, that's great. It says this. I don't fully understand. Here's what she's saying to her sons just before they're about to die. Listen to how she encourages them. This is really amazing. She says this, I don't fully understand how you came into being in my womb. It wasn't I who gave you life and breath, but it was the creator of the world. It was he who shaped the beginning of man and devised the origin of all things. He, in his mercy, will give life and breath to you back again. Since you now now will give yourselves for the sake of his laws. Isn't that amazing? And all seven brothers were tortured and killed. Exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, others, others. Some moms prayed, and God gave them back their child again. Other moms prayed, and seven sons were slaughtered, tortured, killed. Right in front of eyes. This is a paradox if we live with a small view of God. If our view of God is that God only exists, only dwells, only lives in the glory, story, and we don't have a theology of the cross, then we're doomed. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. His whole point is you have to enlarge it, that's a word, broaden. Get a bigger view, a bigger perspective of God. A God that not only exists in the glory, but a God that descends from the glory into the pain. That's what he's saying. So I want to wrap this up. So the question I basically want to—the second one I want to take a look at—obviously is Peter and Stephen again, New Testament here. Peter and Stephen, both these guys were servants in the early church. Peter gets arrested, uh, somewhere around Acts uh, two. I'm sorry, Acts chapter four. He's preaching the gospel. A handful of people gather together, they start praying for him. And miraculously, Peter is released from prison. He's released from prison. He goes out and starts preaching the gospel again. Stephen, not too many days later, he's out preaching in the street. He gets in trouble with this probably the exact same religious leaders. What ends up happening are these religious leaders basically surround him. They question, I wouldn't be surprised if some Christians somewhere around the area were praying for him. And rather than finding release, rather than having a hand from heaven remove these people from causing problems and oppression to Stephen, it ends up happening that every one of them pick up a stone and kills Stephen. Stephen dies. So one by faith, prayer is offered up and is released. Other by faith, preaches and dies. Here's one more. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Rackshack and Benny. You guys are probably familiar with the story. Here's what ends up happening. I love what these guys have to say. Daniel chapter 3 verses 16 and 18. He says this, O oh, king, so most of you guys know the story, very similar, they're standing in front of a massive world leader, and he says, I'm going to kill you unless you guys bow down and worship me. Here's what they say, O oh, king, our God from whom we serve is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand. So they believe. They're like, we believe that God will actually do it. But I love this. He says, but if not, if not, do you get that? We think he's going to deliver us, but even if he doesn't we're still not going to obey you we're ready to die if that's what has to happen we're ready to die because our God is so great our God is so big our theology is that he's not just a God of glory but he's a God that resides in the suffering, in the pain and that's the God that we serve and love I want to wrap this up I want to basically try to drive home where the right of Hebrews is trying to take us. So in essence there's basically two challenges that he poses to his readers. It's consequently get down to us. Two main challenges that he poses to us to really consider and think about. The first challenge is this. He wants for us to place our confidence in God. Not in our agenda for God. There's a distinction here. Let me try to make it. Most of us, I think I would probably be willing to say at some point in our life, if not even maybe currently right now in our life. If you claim to have faith in God, here's what you need to make sure. You need to make certain that your faith in God is actually in God, and not your agenda for God. Let me tell you what I mean. The apostles had a confidence in Jesus, but it was really a confidence before Jesus rose again from the dead, it was really a confidence in their agenda for Jesus. Uh, Luke, uh, last chapter of Luke basically gives us this little story. What was basically going on in their lives. I think it might even be up there. Yeah, Luke 24. Uh, there's a handful of, or a couple of the apostles or leaders or followers of Christ that are walking on this road. Jesus comes alongside of them. He is resurrected from the dead. He has conversation with them. He's like, you guys are like super bummed out. What's wrong? And they're like, we're super bummed out because there's this guy, Jesus. He was awesome. He did miracles. He preached like nobody we've ever heard preach before. But we're super bummed out because we thought... He was going to be a redeemer. Now, he was the redeemer, but here's the problem. They had their own agenda as to what that meant. Their agenda for Christ as their redeemer was that he was going to set up some sort of kingship. He was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. They were going to be their emissaries, Jesus' diplomats. They were going to be this hierarchy of leadership working underneath Jesus's, or within Jesus' cabinet. That was their agenda. And when Jesus died, he couldn't be a messiah Dead messiahs aren't good messiahs. You understand? That was the idea. Dead messiahs don't work. Dead messiahs don't conquer Caesars. Dead messiahs don't set up, you know, cabinets and leadership structures and organizations that rule and judge. But they had an agenda for Jesus. So when Jesus died, they were bombed. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Some of you, We live in this mentality. If you have a God in your life that when He crosses you, when He checks you, when He challenges you, when He sometimes says to you, no, how do you respond? Do you get angry? Do you give God the burden? I mean, what do you do with God? Some people just give God the middle finger and walk away. I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. I'm not going to follow God anymore. I'm not going to pursue them anymore. I asked God to do this for me. I asked God to give me a girlfriend. I asked God to give me a wife. I asked God to give me a baby. He never did. I've been doing this for the past three years. Nothing happened. I'm upset. I'm out of here. That's trusting your agenda for God rather than God. It may be a fine, simplistic point, but I think it's essential. Because in reality, what ends up happening, if we have this perspective of God that he can never cross us, he can never say no to us, he can never challenge our conceptions of who he is and what he wants for our lives, then we, we really don't have a God. We are our own God. Do you understand that? We are our own God. We call the shots. We set the standards. We make the plans. And if God ever whips out the red pen and tries to edit it or change it or correct it, we go like this over it. We're like, no, 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 God. This is mine. This is mine. You see what I'm saying? The writer of Hebrews is basically challenging this group of believers in the first century. Make sure that you trust God and not your agenda for God. The second thing that he wants for us to see is this. He wants for us to update our value system and ultimately to hope in that which is better. Here's what I mean by this. Take a look at verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might be raised again to a better life. Just before that, it says some women, by faith, trusted God and God gave them their children back to life. Uh, Both stories are found in the book of Kings. And uh, one is the, say, like the widow of Zarephath. And um, these are stories that actually happened. Two women prayed uh, that God would raise their children from the dead and God gave them back to them. And so in the very next section of this verse, he says, and other moms prayed and their sons were tortured and killed and slaughtered and died. So the point that I would make is this, is it goes on to say, but these guys, the key or the clue in this text is in the word better. In the word better. It's actually the Greek word, kraton. It literally means something which is far better, something that excels or exceeds. In fact, the majority of the times in which this very word actually is used is in the book of Hebrews. In fact, the majority of time we see this takes place throughout this book. And the writer of Hebrews is trying very desperately to get his point across. I'll give you a couple examples of the way he does this. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 9, he talks about a better hope. 7.22, talks about a better covenant. 8.6, six talks about better promises. 9.23, better sacrifices. 10.24, 10.34, a better possession. 11.16, a better country. Later on in verse 11.35, which is where we're at right here, a better life. What he's trying to say is that unless you upgrade your concept of what truly is best or better for your life, you may fall prey to the delusion of trusting in something for your life, in your life, that's outdated, that won't sustain you, that will actually end up letting you down and destroying you in the end. And here's the reality God loves you too much to leave you in that state of trusting something that is lesser than that which he has already provided. So the question is, what is the far better that he's describing? Verse, uh, uh, verse 39, I love the way this is stated in what's called the amplified version, so I put it on there, I want to read it. It says this, all of these, this is really the, cl- the key to this whole text, the key to the whole text, here's what he says, all of these, this is all the people that he's been talking to up in this particular point, all of these... Though they won divine approval by means of their faith. Did not receive the fulfillment of what was promised to them. Because God had us in mind. And had something better and greater in view for us. So that they, these heroes and heroines of faith. Should not, become, should not come to perfection apart from us. Before we would join them. So here's what the writer of Hebrews is basically saying. It all boils down to this one verse. His whole point is this. Is that the reality is. Is that if this huge list of people that started off. That started off talking about Abel. To Noah. To Moses. To Rahab. To Abraham. To Sarah. To Jephthah. David. All these other people. Gideon that he listed here. All the way through those who had things that in which they conquered. They did good things by faith. And others that had lost everything by faith. If this group of people by faith trusted God and were able to withstand. We saw this a few weeks ago. The word that he uses there is hyperstand. If these people were able to hyperstand, stand against this on-rising tide of difficulty and hardship, all simply based on a promise, how much more could you and I hyperstand? Not because we have merely a promise, but we have a person. Jesus, who's risen from the dead. That's the point. What was that? That was like really suppressed. Some people were like charismatic, Pentecostal, love Jesus. Others were like, should I clap? Yes, clap. This is good news. Jesus is alive. The point that I want to make is this. The writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand The main reason why you and I, as Christians today, living in the 21st century, could stand, should stand, and if we're not standing, if we're not victorious, if we're not pushing forth in confidence and faith, it's simply because we're not looking to Jesus. We're not hoping in him. We're not looking to God's solution. We're trusting in alternative idols. We're trusting in alternative means other than Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is so clear on this. The whole group of people, the whole host of history has literally followed God simply based on promises given to them. But his whole argument is this. But you and I, we can succeed. Because we're not just living off of promises. We are living off of promises. But that's not where it ends. We actually have a person. Much of the world's religions in today, much of the cults today speculate what will happen after death. Christians don't have to speculate. We have somebody that died. We have a person that died and rose again from the dead and lived to tell about it. That's what we have. We believe in not just theory or hope or tales, we believe in a person. A historical event that's rooted in history, that God came into this world, suffered, died in our place, in our stead, so that you and I who have sinned, both by committing sins and by omitting praise and worship and honor that ought to be given to God on a regular basis, we have all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and as a result of that, we have died. The natural consequence result of sin is death. We're all guilty. You ever looked around the world and just wondered why does everything die? The simple answer is sin. We have all done it. We all continue to do it. And God's great gift to mankind is that he has sent his son to reverse that, to change that, to pull you out to snatch you out of death. To deliver you is the language that the Bible describes. To redeem you is also biblical language. To pull you out of the grip of death, to save you from sinful habits, to save you from sins of omission and commission and bring you into glorious new life. So that Paul's whole argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is basically this: that because Jesus rose again from the dead for us, we too actually rise again and have life. You Guys, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I just want you to know Jesus. I want you to look to him. If you're here, you're wrestling with your sin, you don't know how to deal with it, you don't know how to work through it, stop working through it. Stop trying to deal with it. Stop trying to make deals with God. There are no deals that you can make with God. Stop trying to determine how good you can be to bring yourself to God. The Bible is very clear that we can't ascend to God. But here's a glorious truth. That God God has descended to us. God has descended to us. God has descended to us. Took upon flesh and blood. Our sins Our sins upon himself. Died in our place. Took the judgment that we deserved. Died. Suffered. His death was twofold. Not only did he suffer at the hands of men. But he suffered the eternal torments of hell. I don't know how that happened. But Jesus suffered it. He cried out to the Father. And there was silence. There was silence. He did that so that we wouldn't have to rose again so that we would rise again this is the God that you have this is the God that is pursuing you who loves you I'm gonna pray we're gonna respond we're gonna give our praise and our worship to God we're gonna do this by singing we're gonna do this by repenting confessing our sins to God if you're here and you're not a Christian I urge you to repent to turn from your sins to confess your sins to God Sins of commission, sins of omission, sins of righteousness. Sins where you look at yourself and think, I'm good. To confess those things, to turn to God. We're going to sing, we're going to give our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. This is a way for us to give back joyfully to Jesus because we love him. God's a generous God, we want to be generous too. Guys at the end of the day the gospel actually works. You know what type of people get the gospel? type of people that are actually impacted by the gospel, how it affects their lives. People that are affected by the gospel become humble because they realize there was nothing in and of themselves that did it. They become loving because they realize I was once unlovable. Your God in great love loved me. They become generous because they realize I was stingy, I hoarded everything and my great God. was so generous, so generous that He gave His only begotten Son for me. I want to be generous. And they are also hope filled. The grave is not the end. And because the grave is not the end, what that tells us is that life has value. Life has value to God. and Because it has value to God, it should have value to us. That means we have all people who are loving, hope filled full of joy, full of love, full of humility, can actually live in this world as well adjusted human beings, loving one another, serving one another, being on mission just like Jesus was on mission, serving, taking care of one another. That's the type of people we should be. And it all has to do with the gospel. The gospel is not the ABC's of how to get saved. The gospel is the A to Z of what it means to live our lives for the glory of God and for your joy. Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that it's not because of what we've done. In fact, quite to the very opposite. God, we have sinned. We're guilty. We stand condemned. And yet in great love and honor, you sent your son to redeem and save. So God, as a result now, we give back to you worship, praise. We confess our sin to you. We commit our lives into your hands because we know, God, that you and you alone are a God that's able to sustain. We've got even greater promises and greater hope than this host of people in Hebrews chapter 11 did. So I pray that we would take what we've been given and live according to it by the power of the Holy Spirit.